This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On prussic acid, we break our fast, we lunch on a morphine stew, we dine with a matchhead consomme, and drink carbolic acid brew. That is an excerpt from a song that will become increasingly relevant over the course of this episode. Hi, I'm Ben. I want to kiss you, but your lips are full of borax. I mean, your food. My mm-hmm. name's Noel, and this is Ridiculous History, and we're talking about poison food today. Yes, yes, we're talking about poison food. Uh, but don't worry, folks, this will not be a downer of an episode. It's mm-hmm. actually pretty inspiring. As always, we'd like to introduce you to our super producer, Casey Pegram. He's not suffering anymore, apparently. No, no, he's not suffering anymore. He has been through the fire. So let's hop in the time machine, Noel. What do you say? I am down for some time travel. Casey, can we get our time travel sound cue? Perfect. All right, Noel, here we are. We're in the 1800s, the late 1800s. Is that what we put into the time machine dial? We just typed in general late 1800s? Yeah, it's a a preset button. Okay, cool. It's right next to popcorn. Just trying to make sure I understand the uh, intricacies of this device. (laughs) Right. Well, it's a good thing that they had that button preset because it helped us get here for today's episode. In the late 1800s, you see, food in the U.S. 
was bananas in a slang way. It wasn't all bananas. That's right. There was no way to really tell what was in your food. We take for granted that today we can take down a packet of crisps off of the shelf in our local uh, grocery and we can see, you know, listed sequentially what poisonous uh, materials are in it that will clog our arteries and slowly kill us. Back then it was a mystery. Right, exactly. Uh, It is true that more people in the United States at least tended to grow their own food, right, or uh, the the chicken they consumed, for instance, would be chicken raised on their property. Mm-hmm. But you are absolutely right about the grocery store, especially processed food, something made in a factory uh, with little to no oversight. Something maybe roughly along the lines of, hey, try not to put any fingers in the beef stew. Yeah, and, you know, pig parts. Take your Take your pick. Right. And things were adulterated, right? They could be polluted purposefully uh, to save cost. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could also be accidentally contaminated because there weren't very high health standards at the time. Absolutely not. I mean, we know how important it is to wash our hands when handling raw chicken because Gordon Ramsay told us so. But in our home... There's no oversight as to whether or not we did that. So if we get a foodborne illness, it is on our heads. But at least today, we can hopefully depend that the people working in chicken processing plants or any food processing plants are operating under safety guidelines that keep us from getting contaminants in our food. And they're tested to make sure said contaminants do not make it through the process. In today, where we are, because we're in the late 1800s, mm-hmm. Not the case. No. Do you happen to see that hot-headed man looking increasingly aggravated and perturbed here on our uh, random late 1800 street? I think he has gout. <laughs> I don't doubt he has gout. I just said that because it rhymed. I am all about the lack of doubt that he has gout. Mm-hmm. Give me a shout if you can finish this stanza for us. hey But who are we talking about? I'm so glad we posed this question. Uh, the fellow we see there uh, getting increasingly irritated is a guy named Harvey Washington Wiley. Oh, he doesn't have gout. He's a very health-conscious guy. No, no, yeah, yeah. He's, he's I was actually, talking about the angry guy next to him. Yeah, there's a line of angry people here. But Harvey was angry for a pretty specific reason, right, Ben? Yes, absolutely. He looked around at the state of food and said... Looks, you mean. He's doing it right now. Sure, sure, absolutely. He looks around and he says, what on earth is going on here? What is actually going into people's food? Wiley, you see, is a man on a mission. He is a Civil War vet uh, who, after fighting for the Union side, returned to the Academy, capital A, to continue his studies. After he graduated, he started teaching in a public school, and then he became a, he went back and became a doctor. He he has his bona fides, is what I'm saying here. That's right, Ben. He got his undergrad in 1867 from Hanover College and then proceeded to get an M.D. from Indiana Medical College in uh, 1871. He also studied for a year at the Lawrence Scientific School of Harvard University and Afterwards, he became a professor. This is all backstory for this guy next to the guy with gout, for everyone who's keeping track of our time travel. In 1874, he took a position as a professor of chemistry at Purdue University, and you will find, we found in the course of our research, that he did leave Purdue 
But I heard an interesting anecdote about him that I thought you might enjoy. Apparently, he left with a bit of a scandal. A scandal? Mm-hmm. It, it's a very different time. Dish. Okay. So apparently, he left because he was riding a bicycle around campus, and this was seen as unbecoming of a professor. Well, yeah. What is he, some kind of common riffraff riding a bicycle with two <laughs> wheels? Absurd. Malarkey, one would say. What was he doing at Purdue? He was studying sugar and sorghum cultures. And throughout this process, he started to discover that the sugar that was available, I'm sorry, is available in the time that we're still occupying in our travels, was adulterated. It had extra stuff in it that did not belong in there, like filler. Right, Ben? Right. And his fascination with... Uh, the dark side of sweet things didn't stop there. He published his first paper on food adulteration uh, connected to the use of glucose, specifically in honey. This was his mission. What are you eating? He keeps saying to people. Is that when a, a food cheats on its spouse? Well, I guess it depends on the relationship the food has with the spouse. Do you think foods have to only like foods can commune or could, could a banana commune? You know, with a piece of bread. I don't know. This is a conversation for another time. Let's leave it. But he found this stuff, this filler in the sugar, in the honey, and it made him go, huh, maybe I haven't reached the bottom of this problem yet. Right. How deep does this uh, culinary rabbit hole go? So his interests began to expand beyond uh, the academy, right? Beginning in 1880. Oh, look, now we're back in present tense. Now we're done with his backstory. Here's what's happening to him, right? He is protesting against the practice of adulteration in food and in fertilizers, but primarily narrowing his focus to food as time goes on. In 1881, he was appointed state chemist of Indiana to analyze the contents of this, so his passion became his job. Yeah, and he was even elected to something called the German Chemical Society, which sounds very fancy. Um, and he worked in Germany at, at a lab called the Imperial Food Laboratory, which was in Bismarck. And it was at this time that he started getting really comfy with a, a newfangled device called a polariscope that allowed him to do that deep research of, of foodstuffs. And – off air, we were talking about this. Uh, Noel, you mentioned that he didn't just stay with Indiana and Germany. Eventually, he goes federal, correct? He did, in fact, get a job, was appointed, indeed, uh, at the U.S. Department of Agriculture in their chemical division. This was in 1883. And this is where he goes big time, Noel, because now he has a budget and he has the wherewithal, the latitude, the agency to figure out how to tackle what he sees as the systemic contamination of food in the United States. I think his budget was in the neighborhood of 5K. You want to plug that into your handy-dandy inflation calculator? Yes, five grand, five large in 1883 is equal to about $115,700 in today's Today's cash. So not a blockbuster budget, but not exactly meager either. But most importantly, he had that budget. He also got himself some test subjects. Yes. Twelve eager young men in their 20s who were described as clerks that had passed the civil service exam and had insatiable appetites. There's actually a letter from one of them to Harvey 
um, asking to be a part of this study um, that really relied on the ability to have kind of an iron gut. And this fellow really thought he fit the bill. He says, Dear Sir, I read in the paper of your experiments on diet. I have a stomach can stand anything. I have a stomach that will surprise you. I am afflicted with seven, and then he spells out seven, diseases. <laughs> Never went to a doctor for 15 years. They told me 15 years ago that I could not live eight months. What do you think of it? My stomach can hold anything. That's the kind of guy that Harvey is looking for because, you see, he is planning to poison these 12 hungry men. And he's, you know, he's planning to poison them with their consent. I think that's important to note. Some kind of fetish thing? What are we talking about here? It's sort of like in the Middle Ages, they would have the trope of the royal taste tester mm. who would who would check food for uh, the aristocracy to make sure, you know, their jellied eels weren't poison. You think that guy volunteered, though? I feel like he was just some schmuck that just sort of got stuck with that job. Yeah, I don't know. I bet it's one of those jobs that you sort of fall into. It doesn't seem like you go to school for that. You're just in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time. But this is – in many ways, a modern analog. He was turning these test subjects into sort of the taste testers for the United States. What he did was to first have them consent and sign a waiver, essentially removing all liability from him or the USDA, and then they would agree to eat all of their meals, three meals a day, from his test kitchen. Yeah, not not like America's test kitchen. This was uh, a much more disturbing version of that. And it had the very tidy name mm -hmm. of hygienic table trials. But the Washington Post gave it a much sexier name, didn't they? Yes, they called it. Casey, we might need some dramatic music for this. The, the Poison, Poison Squad. Squad. Yeah, I mean, that's. That's a great name yeah. for almost anything. Yeah, the Poison Squad rolls deep, my friend. Off air, Ben and I were talking about how our new hip hop duo would maybe be called the Poison Squad. Mm -hmm. It's either that or start a fan group for the uh, rock band Poison, which I, I think we went the right direction with hip hop. I'm feeling it. So here's, here's what he did. Here's the kind of stuff he put in these poor guys' food. Borax, copper sulfate, salicylic acid, and uh, formaldehyde even. And they would they would just eat this food. Now, he didn't tell them – this is important. He didn't tell them what item would have been poisoned. The whole meal wouldn't necessarily have some kind of contaminant in it. But the early trials uh, gave him some <laughs> – I guess added insight into human behavior because imagine you have, let's say, just for example, roast chicken, potatoes, uh, coleslaw. What else? You, you got like four or five things. Maybe some asparagus. There we go. You know, a nice side perhaps, some mac and cheese. I don't know. I'm editorializing here. I think that's a delicious meal. And they probably did too. But what Wiley found is that when someone was eating something, they could detect a contaminant in the food and they would just, you know, stop eating that mac and cheese dish or stop eating those potatoes. So he realized he would have to change his testing method and he started putting the contaminants in these gelatin capsules. 
Yeah, because they were complaining about they could actually taste it in the food. They said the milk tastes metallic or the, the soup tastes like it's gone bad. But Ben, was it really important that it, it maintained that sense of they didn't know which one they were eating? I guess it didn't really matter. Because what they're eating the capsules, then why do they even have to eat the meal? Why, why not just eat the capsules? Why, why, why does the food even play into the uh, the research anymore at that point? Right. Part of it is to replicate the experience of the American household eating, right? Like how much how much borax do you have to have in potatoes before you can taste it, right? This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car is called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off the that's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. Sometimes to get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. We're nothing if not trailblazers here at Ridiculous History. And you know also is a huge uh, iconoclastic challenger of the status quo, Ben? Who is that, Noel? Well, I think you know. Hmm. It's Harry's. Yes, it's Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by all kinds of like slipshod, questionable products in the shaving industry. And they said, hey, you got to be the change. I was excited to try out the Winston set. It's an all-in-one package. You get some shaving cream. You get that great razor we're talking about. They also have deodorant. Yeah, I was about to say. Very helpful. I do really enjoy uh, their line of self-care products. Um, Richly lathering, skin-softening body washes and scents like redwood, wild lens, and stone. You want to know what a stone smells like? I've often wondered. Only you know you can. <laughs> so don't settle for the status quo, folks. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash history. Once again, that's harrys.com slash history for a $3 trial set. 
just to backtrack slightly, these guys, and they had to be guys. True. Because Wiley was a uh, well-renowned misogynist. Um, <laughs> he said that women were, quote, savages and that they um, were bereft of the brain capacity that uh, men were blessed with. Um, so kind of a jerk. Yeah. Uh, not, not, not necessarily a good guy. Um, he did do some good work here, but, you know. It's that same discussion, I guess, about separating the art from the artist or the uh, the research from the, the researcher. But there was a lot that went into this process. There were a lot of uh, measurements that had to be taken. These subjects had to be weighed. They had to have their poop checked and their urine and their hair and, and all kinds of bodily fluids collected. And he tested, you know, the uh, prevalence of these materials that would come out. And he would check them before and after and then compare the results. Right. And building on – uh, Wiley's uh, terrible opinions of uh, women. He he did have subjectivity when he came to selecting these uh, these young men. He wanted them to have what he described as high moral character, which is not really something you can effectively measure. It kind of boils down to, do I like them? And so so when he was meticulously measuring these folks or him and his team, I should say, uh, you were absolutely right. They were getting their urine and their feces analyzed, being weighed. Their hair was being checked. Uh, they were also getting sick. This this did happen. It wasn't something that they just stopped. They continued. And as a result, these test subjects got sick. They learned the hard way how much borax or a formaldehyde is, you know, too much. And as part of their qualifications, they had these iron guts because it just made them willing to do the thing, I guess, more than anything, to willingly be poisoned. I'm not sure if it was – were they getting paid? I guess they had to have been getting paid something, right? Surely a stipend. I would hope so. Oh, no, Ben, I'm sorry. I just found uh, they weren't paid. Their pay was there's three squares a day. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was kind of like prison rules. Different time indeed. I guess so. But they also, one could argue, were paid in public renown because this project was a watershed moment for food regulation in the United States. And this poison squad was lionized by the press, not just the Washington Post, but people were writing songs about them. They were writing to their legislators and demanding food regulation because they were getting stomach aches, they were vomiting, they had nausea, and the public was aware of this. The The song we open the show with, or the excerpt we open the show with, is from a song called The Song of the Poison Squad by S.W. Gilliland. These were, these were like public figures. So I think, you know, the question is, what uh, what price could you put on fame? Would you exchange some stomach aches and vomiting to, you know, be a, a national food hero? Uh, we, we should also mention, Noel, that Harvey Wiley, I know we're making him sound like a little bit of a mad scientist, but in his defense, he did also eat some of these meals with his poison squad boys. Maybe that was, you know, as a result of his war experience. He felt like if he was going to ask these boys to take a bullet, he had to be willing to take one too. Which is, you know, a, a great point to make. This guy is, uh, is, is increasingly complex. He is quite complex, but again, uh, a, a total jerk when it came to his treatment of women. As it turns out, in addition to the slurs that I mentioned that he said earlier, um, the program had a chef. 
by the name of Chef Perry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's at one point, according to an article from Esquire called The Poison Squad, An Incredible History by Bruce Watson, uh, Chef Perry was replaced by a female. And, you know, his poison squad, Wiley's poison squad, they were kind of his bros. And I guess maybe one of the queer qualifications might have been misogyny as well, because one of them was quoted as saying, a woman, a tut tut. Why, the very idea, a woman can potter around a domestic hearth. But when it comes to frying eggs in a scientific mode and putting formaldehyde in the soup, never. That was kind of my... Like the the doctor, the professor from Futurama kind of. It came out of nowhere. It's sort of a Professor Farnsworth. That's the guy. And despite this rampant, cartoonish, supervillain-level misogyny, this guy was lauded in the uh, the public sphere in magazines like Good Housekeeping, which called him the watchdog of the kitchen. According to an article by the Science History Institute – he was garnering public support. He was garnering governmental support. And in this specific case, public support uh, from the same people that he thought so little of was instrumental in forcing large businesses and food manufacturers to actually, you know, stop putting uh, formaldehyde and sodium benzoate and stuff. But there was another supervillain in the story, wasn't there? The food lobby, the dreaded food lobby, who looked at Wiley as persona non grata, and they fought him and his findings tooth and nail and did everything in their power to discredit him. But despite that adversity, he managed to continue to turn public opinion to the point where a law passed that led to the foundation of a pretty important organization. Yes, At last, at last, 1906, the Pure Food and Drugs Act passes. And this is, at this point in Wiley's life, he has been an unceasing advocate of some sort of regulation. Uh, He also, we should mention, expanded later into uh, the field of contamination in drugs. But the Pure Food and Drugs Act of 1906, a.k.a. one of the biggest reasons you're not going to vomit when you eat a bag of chips – Hopefully, in theory, crisps. Yes, crisp chips, uh, freeze-dried asparagus, uh, cashew milk, pretty much anything. Any nut milk, really. (laughs) Any any nut milk, really. Uh, This act passes with the backing of President Theodore Roosevelt, and it specifically prohibits adulteration and misbranding of food and drugs. At this point, it was the most comprehensive legislation of its kind in the United States. It paved the way for uh, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And to make a long story short, the foundation of the Food and Drug Administration led to the nutrition and ingredient labels that we see today in our local Whole Foods. And this this is something that continues in the modern day. We are back in the present, right? But we've taken the long way around. Yeah. It was a slog. <laughs> it was a slog. We should have just hopped back in the time machine. Spoiler alert, there's no time machine. Well, you know. It's... Figurative? I guess, I mean, we're all time travelers, aren't we? We're just moving at a rate of one second. It's all about imagination. There we go. There we go. And when you and I were looking into this, uh, I don't know about you, Noel, but I was surprised to find that some food legislation was far more recent than one would have supposed. 
I am surprised to hear that, Ben. Tell me more. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're into this. Uh, in 1990, the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act passes. This requires all packaged food to bear nutrition labeling and all health claims for food to be consistent with current regulations. There's a really interesting and strange ongoing conflict between food advertisers and the U.S. government and probably the government uh, in which you live if it's not the U.S. Like, Noel, have you ever – gone grocery shopping and you see a cereal that says maybe it's all natural or wholesome. How do you define wholesome? Yeah, that sort of vague language is a thing all across manufacturing. And like I guess a good example is like a, a bottle of water where it says it contains up to 10 percent recycled material. And that up to could mean zero. <laughs> yeah. It, it could be up to zero 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 one percent. Yeah, and you see that with food packaging. Of course, these regulations are hugely important, but with any regulation, you're going to find a loophole, right? And manufacturers are doing that all over the place. Mm -hmm. And we found in the course of of poking around in in this this food war between advertisers and the government, uh, we found that contamination of foods or counterfeiting of foods still occurs today. Day. And this, this is kind of surprising. Um, one of the anecdotes that, that I heard, unconfirmed, was that there was a calamari counterfeiting problem. Is that the ones that's made of pig buttholes? Yes. Yeah. Nice. So chitlins, chitlins fried with some sort of adulterant to make them taste more seafoody. Is this true? This is true? I always heard that was urban myth. Is it really true, Ben? I don't want to ruin this for everyone. So I, I will say that I have not seen a hard, like wide reaching study on this. Uh, but there's a pretty interesting piece that ran on this American life about what's marketed as imitation calamari. So it's not illegal to sell something as imitation, right? Like imitation crab meat or one of our mutual favorites, cheese food flavored product. Yeah, or even back to our margarine versus butter episode where the reason that margarine was so uh, maligned by the butter industry is because it was looked at as potentially being sold as a, uh, a faux butter. But that all-powerful butter lobby made damn sure that the margarine folks couldn't even color the stuff yellow. And we got a great email that I think we'll read about uh, dye packs in margarine, that people could dye their own margarine so they could make it yellow at home. That one comes with pictures, and we're going to post those on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where you can find us as Ridiculous History or some variation thereof. So while we're in the modern day, to sew it up, uh, another thing that is often reported as counterfeit would be sushi. A uh, study by nonprofit group Oceana around 2016 cited that 39% of restaurants surveyed in New York City are serving fraudulent fish. Uh, a phrase that I am oddly fond of. It's, it's, it's like a good insult. You could call someone a fraudulent fish. Faux fish. A faux fish. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. 
This is important stuff. Your team can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your teen enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. And according to these reports, what's happening is that restaurants or maybe even wholesalers are selling a cheaper alternative to a certain type of fish. A grade maybe, right? Right, Like you got sushi grade tuna, but maybe they're selling a a slightly – cheaper cut and calling it that. Is that what, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's one, that's one aspect of it, uh, for sure. But here's, here's one of the really dirty ones since we're talking about tuna. Ooh, dirty. (laughs) Some of the fraudulent fish that would be substituted for tuna is something called escolar, commonly referred to in the seafood industry as X-lax fish. Does it do what I think it does? Yes, it is not an ironic name. This is not a Little John situation. Got it. So the problems continue today, but luckily they were mitigated to a great and amazing degree by uh, one man who was not perfect, who made it his mission to clean up the grocery store. Yeah, and today I think a big thing that we're still having to deal with um, is concern about pesticides being in our food and hormones being injected into livestock and it kind of leaching into milk and eggs. Because, you know, back in the day, in the early days we were talking about livestock was largely being raised by individual families on family farms. Um, today, you know, the meatpacking industry is a whole ginormous conglomerate, and, you know, there is concern about that. So uh, hopefully the FDA continues to uh, fulfill its mission, but you can never be sure, right? Because, I mean, it is only one organization, and there's so many new food products coming out all the time. 
Even recently, the Sargento company recalled uh, a huge batch of their ultra-thin sliced Longhorn Colby 6.84-ounce product. And with this recall comes the UPC code and all of that because um, some adulterants made it through the process. So even with this organization and the work of our misogynist friend, stuff still does make it through that might even give the most iron-gutted of us a run for our money. No matter how many pre-existing diseases you have. Or the runs. Or the runs. For our money. I don't know. There we go. Spot on. And we want to hear from you. What are your encounters with uh, contaminated or adulterated food? Uh, what what do you think about the FDA? And also, j- just out of curiosity, what's the weirdest thing you ever ate? Was it good? Let us know. You know, this makes me think of there's a Tim and Eric sketch uh, with songs called All the Food is Poison. Um, it's just like, tacos, poison, hot dogs, it's poison. It's like just r- rattling off food. And, All the food is poison. That's just, that's going to be in my head for the rest of the day now. If you haven't seen that, check it out. It's, it's uh, upsetting. And speaking of you, friends and neighbors, fellow food fans or food fiends alike, it's time for Listener Mail. Our first listener mail comes from Gordon in Ontario, Canada. He says, gents, I thoroughly enjoyed last week's margarine episode of all things. It brought back childhood memories of small town Ontario and the packaging innovation shown below. We mentioned this a little while ago. Ontario consumers were restricted by law from buying yellow margarine and got really tired of messing up their mixing bowls to color their lily white edible oil spread. Ben, do you see the impulse there? Why do we need to trick ourselves? We know it's not butter. It's very strange because, you know, again, folks, you have to see these pictures. It's so it's so weird. I was wondering where this motivation would come from. And I can't help but think maybe there was a cook somewhere who was buying margarine and wanted it to appear to be butter at the home dinner table or in a restaurant. But there was a uh, there's a weird method to this product. Well, it really strengthens Big Butter's beef with margarine that this coloring was such an important factor. Um, so the, the message goes on. So folks really got tired of messing up their mixing bowls to color their lily white edible oil spread. Uh, in the early 60s, the manufacturers responded by selling uncolored margarine in sealed plastic bags with a tiny button of food dye in the middle. I recall being tasked by my mom with popping the dye button and squishing the bag until the color was nice and uniform. It's called Easy Color. You sent us some amazing pics, uh, and it shows the process of um, the, the the lily white oil spread in the bag, um, a pair of delightful 60s kind of Frank Lloyd Wright painted fingernail woman's hands squishing the bag. You see the little nipple in the middle popping with color, mm-hmm. and then more squishing hands with a, with a diamond ring, and then boom, it ends mixing bowl mess. The taste tells. That's the slogan. Oh, there's another slogan, too. It's pinch the color berry, knead the bag. For that rich, creamy flavor. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for writing in, Gordon. This this email <laughs> this email uh, made our day, and I keep staring at these old advertisements. I think we're both fans of vintage ads. Love it so much. He does in the letter with easy color, truly stupid, and, yes, ridiculous. 
And our next email comes from Holly. Holly writes in to say, one of my favorite things about the old Green Acres show was when they had to climb up the pole outside the house to answer the phone or make a call. Listening to your podcast brought to mind one of the more memorable phone-related episodes. Oliver got really upset with the phone company and decided he could do better, so they gave him the keys to the switchboard. Hilarity ensues. Uh, Holly cites this. It's Oliver versus the phone company in 1967. Holly continues, until I listened to your show, I assumed that this was just a way of laughing at how backwards their farming culture was, still using a system that was long gone even in rural areas, but it was filmed in the late 60s, and according to your report, phone systems like that were still operational at that time, and this was not so unbelievable as I imagined it to be. Instead of a dig at a negative aspect of rural culture hopelessly stuck in the past, that show was more of a negative view of the upper crust not being able to adapt, which of course was the theme of the entire series. Thanks for the podcast, and thanks to Green for presenting their own ridiculous history. New York is where I'd rather stay. I get allergic smelling, hey? Yeah, that was the... It presented two sides in the theme. <laughs> you know, the dude really was... He, he, you know, what does he say? Da-da-da-da-da. Fresh air! Da-da-da-da-da. Times Square! Da-da-da-da-da. Some something. You are my wife. Goodbye, city life. You know? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. It almost is a satire of the upper crust and what big babies they can be. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And this concludes our listener mail, but not our show. We hope you enjoyed this look at the uh, strange yet profoundly important mission of Harvey Wiley and his Poison Squad, and we hope you tune in for our next episode, which takes us to ancient India. Yeah, and we're going to get super shady. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> so tune in, as always. Thanks to our super producer, Casey Pegram. Uh, thanks to Candace Gibson, our contributor who wrote the article Ridiculous History, an Ambitious Chemist and a Poison Squad. Thanks to Alex Williams for composing our theme, and thanks to you for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode of Ridiculous History. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events 
Prince the other week. I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber team rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details.